Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. I do want to, uh, before I get into the message this morning, um, we have a group uh, team uh, that was here first service and they're here in this service and so I want to do this now rather than at the end of the service. But We've got a team going to Guatemala. Um, they have been there before. So you guys, why don't you guys stand up? Um, this isn't the entire team. There's a couple others who are part of the team. But um, we want to just kind of pray for them as they go uh, shortly. And if you don't know much about the trip, you can... Uh, talk to any of them. They are not shy, and uh, they will tell you exactly what you want to know about what they're doing, and uh, I know they've shared before. Um, so right now, um, maybe those of you around them could uh, maybe lay, maybe if you want to kind of, if you know them, you can pop over to them and uh, put your hands on them, and um, we're going to just pray as they go off uh, in, in obedience and serve. Um, I like it when there's like more people than I expect doing stuff. That's great. <laughs> God, we um, come before you this morning. We, we just pray for this team as they go to Guatemala. God, I pray that they will um, reflect you to those who are far from you and they will encourage and embrace strengthen those who are serving in those areas. God, I pray that they would be a freshness and an encouragement to those who are serving as pastors and as um, as workers um, there on the ground. God, I pray that they would be able to bring encouragement and life and light. Um, God, we pray that you will do all the things that you intend to do, that they will obey the, the, the movings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit as they're there, and God, that, that you would do a work that only you can do. And so, God, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so this morning, we are, we are jumping back into the book of Acts. And um, as we get into this, there is a particular context that I think we have to be aware of, because it's, this is, this is a pretty intense three chapters. We're not going over the three chapters today, but, but over the next few weeks, we'll be going through these three chapters. But um, I, I like knowing if something good is going to happen. Like, I, how many, like, I don't know, are, are you like me where, where, like, if there's something good coming, do you want to know about it? And, like, you look forward to it. Um, I, on the other hand, um, don't necessarily want to know if something really bad's going to happen and it's out a little ways because then that's all I can think about and it ruins everything between here and there. Um, how many of you are like that at all? Like, like if it's good, I want to know because I want to look forward to it, want to live in that. If it's really bad, I, like, let's just not tell me because I'll, when it hits, I'll, I mean, yeah, it'll hit no matter what. So here's the thing that's interesting. Where we're picking up in Acts, and we, we, our last, our last uh, sermon in Acts was October 22nd. If you want to go back, that was kind of a recap of the first 21 chapters in Acts. So if you want to go back, October 22nd is the message where we recapped. But um, where we are in Acts is that uh, Paul 
is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's been warned by friends, by family, and by a prophet, Agabus, who God sent to him to tell him that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will be in chains. Like the last passage I believe that we looked at was when Agabus comes down and says to Paul, he takes Paul's belt and he wraps it around his hands and says, whoever this belt belongs to, this is their, this is what's waiting for them in Jerusalem. So against everyone's advice, everyone's telling Paul, like, we don't think you should go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. But he goes to Jerusalem anyway. I would think that in the not in the back of his mind, but like in the forefront of his mind, as he's heading to Jerusalem, and when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's got to be thinking of when is this shoe going to drop, right? And I would imagine that his, his trip to Jerusalem has got to be, like, I don't know how, and I may, I'm thinking in my own context, and, and, may, and maybe Paul's totally different. Um, I'm sure he's very different than me, but um, Paul, I mean, I'm just thinking that I'm going to be thinking my entire trip to Jerusalem like, when is it going to happen? I'm going to be watching every, like around every corner. I'm going to be thinking like every person who comes up to me, I'm thinking, is this it? Uh, so, so, I, so, so just to kind of set that context, Paul arrives in Jerusalem in the context of he's been told, not just by people that he's kind of like, yeah, they're friends of mine. They're worried about me. They, I mean, they, they're, they're, they are over worrisome people, you know, that kind of thing. But literally a prophet came down from God and said, this is what's going to happen. So like, it's not just like some crazy people are saying, don't go in there. Um, it's, it's like a reputable guy who is, is, is bringing the word of the Lord to Paul. So he's just made this long journey with a group of people back to Jerusalem. Uh, the cool thing is that from all of these Gentile churches that have been planted outside of Judea, um, they heard about the suffering and the persecution that's happening in Jerusalem. And so they all take up, these churches, these Gentile churches, take up offerings for these Jewish believing church, this Jewish believing church in Jerusalem. And they send Paul with a whole bunch of money that they've self, self-sacrificially given. And he's bringing that to the church in Jerusalem. But he knows that in Jerusalem awaits him the loss of his freedom. So over, as I said, the next three chapters, 21 to 23, is kind of this whole thing that goes down in Jerusalem. And we've kind of separated it out a little bit to kind of walk through it because I think there's some really significant things that we can learn through this. But here's what we need to remember. This is the last part of Paul's ministry as a free individual in the book of Acts, in his ministry. This is it. Once he gets to Jerusalem, once he gets arrested, he's no longer a free man for the rest of his ministry. And so the letters he writes to churches back in what's now kind of modern day Turkey, he writes from being bound in chains. And, and, and so we, we have to recognize that that's happening. In fact, in Ephesians 6, 18, he, he writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, hey, you need to be praying in the spirit at all times. You need to be praying, bringing everything to God through prayer. And then he says this, he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains 
that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So even like there, he's, that's, that, he writes that after he's gotten to Jerusalem and after these things have gone down. And so, and so here's, here's a couple of things that I just want us to remember as we see Paul moving and how this affects his ministry. It doesn't change his objective or his assignment or what he does. He continues to tell people about Jesus and he continues to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though he's transitioning from a free man to someone in chains. He's not obeying Jesus differently as a prisoner in chains than he was obeying Jesus as a free man. No difference. He still obeys Jesus the same way. Paul's lack of freedom doesn't minimize his ministry. In fact, in this case, as we'll see in the, in the like kind of layout of Acts, um, he ends up standing before much more important people than he's ever stood before before, and he is in chains. So often we capitulate to our circumstances and surroundings. We let those things determine how we live or how we obey Jesus. Here's the things that I want us to understand. God's assignment and our sentness does not depend on anything that the world can give us or that the world can take away from us. Okay, there's nothing that the world can give us to make us more effective in carrying out what God's called us to do, and there's nothing they can take away from us to make us less effective in what God does. God uses the things that he places in our lives. And so we can't, we, we, we don't want to be in this place of saying, my situation determines my ministry effectiveness, my reach for Jesus Christ, because it doesn't. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, God is there with you. The Holy Spirit is in you and moving through you to accomplish his purposes. <clears throat> and so in the next few chapters, the way, the way I kind of look at it is that there is this communion of the people of God, which then we see concerns of the people of God. We see the compromise of the people of God, and then we see the consequences that come from the people of God being together. And that's kind of how I kind of kind of put a put maybe just a, a loose structure in the next few chapters. So if you have your Bibles, we're in uh, Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. Luke writes this, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders who were present there in the church in Jerusalem. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Here's what's really cool. So Paul gets to Jerusalem, and on the next day, he goes in to uh, see James and all the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and he, he, he very specifically goes through one by one what God has done on, in these years that he's been out ministering outside of Judea in these places where there are more Gentiles and they are responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he like tells them a story about it when he and Barnabas went to this one town and they thought that they were gods, they were like Greek gods and, and how they were able to take that and turn it back and that all of the, a bunch of these people in this town 
accepted Jesus and there was a church that was planted there and he, and they, he gets to tell James and the elders of the church how how they've been planting churches and those churches have been growing and those those infant churches are sending people to plant other churches like they're not waiting till you know like 20 years later when they've got all their stuff in a row they're actually just sending people and they're just going out and it's in every church that he plants is a sending church and all of these things are happening and he's telling them all of these stories one by one He's, he's basically saying all this stuff, which again is mostly like modern Turkey where all this stuff was happening and how salvation came to the Gentiles, how churches are growing and being planted and, and along with this, this incredibly sacrificial gift that these churches are sending back, these Gentile believers are sending to the Jewish believers in, in Jerusalem. And so he tells them all these incredible things. Like, these are amazing stories of a place where the gospel had not been preached yet. These were unreached people outside of, of Israel, and, 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 and Paul was taking the gospel. I mean, these were incredible stories that require great celebration. It's kind of like, you know, hearing about what God is doing uh, all over the world. You know, a, a couple of years ago, we, we kept, we heard things like the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran through, through people making, through these disciple making movements. And, and that's still happening, but it's interesting because today the fastest growing church is in Saudi Arabia, which is wild. But God uses whatever circumstances are in front of him because actually the, the king of the, 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 the royal family in Saudi have recognized that oil's probably not going to make them rich forever. And so they're inviting other, they're looking at other economic streams. So other businesses are coming into Saudi Arabia. And with those businesses, sometimes comes Christians who can share underground <laughs> Jesus. And now there's Saudis making disciples of other Saudis. And so it's like this thing of, of, of Paul saying all these cool things of what's happening uh, outside of Jerusalem. And, and so they're, you know, getting excited. And it says, and they, they glorified God together, which, which would make sense that that's what they would do. I mean, when you hear those kinds of things. But here's the thing that we have to always bear in mind is that whenever God is at work growing his kingdom, he's taking away influence and power from the enemy, whether spiritual or human, and there will inevitably arise opposition. Anytime God is working and taking away authority, power from the enemy, there will always arise opposition. And so it requires great discernment to identify what is fallen opposition towards us and what is of legitimate concern for the purity of the gospel and faithfulness to Jesus. Because those things can get mixed up and intertwined really easily. Like someone going out and, and teaching something that actually isn't true of what the Bible says, but sounds like it could be. We need to be really careful with that. We need to be discerning and wise and make sure that people aren't led astray. But then there's things that are more kind of our conveniences and comforts that call this cultural creep that has creeped into our lives and become part of, of what we kind of experience with Jesus. And those are things that actually are, are not, don't belong in the gospel. And we get upset about those things being threatened when God begins to break down our idols I think it, 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 I don't know about you, but, but I'm really good at elevating 
or I'm really good at elevating to primary importance things that aren't and often demoting things that are. <laughs> I, I'm actually pretty good at that, unfortunately. <laughs> and that's really what happened in the, in the garden with the serpent and, and Eve, where basically the serpent, Eve had a path to, to, to pursue. Obedience or get more knowledge. And getting knowledge is not a bad thing. But we see over and over in scripture that God wants our obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. If you love me, you will obey me. But Eve was tempted with, well, no, 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 you don't need to obey the one thing God told you to do. How about more knowledge? You can have more knowledge. Knowledge is good, right? And so knowledge is kind of a secondary thing to obedience when it comes to Jesus. And, and, and so, again, it's not a bad thing and it's important, but that's kind of how things work. And so, so we see Paul comes and he gives this report and everybody's excited and they're glorifying God. And then, and then we see the uh, James and the elders at the church. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So there's all kinds of Jewish now Jesus followers they recognize Jesus as Messiah. And he says, look at how many thousands there are who believed here in Jerusalem. They are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So there's this concern that James and the elders have about these rumors and stories that are floating around among the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And they say, look, we're excited about what God is doing, but we also have some concerns that are real. That, like the concern about what's happening, it doesn't even necessarily mean that the rumors or the hearsay is true. The concern is that these things are out there and people are confused and people are thinking that you are saying things that you're not saying or they're getting confused with some of the things that you're saying and they're interpreting it differently than what, what you're saying. And so they say, look, many of these Jews who follow Jesus are still zealous for the customs and traditions contained in the law of Moses. They've become our identity and our, they're, they're deeply woven into our culture and that's okay, that's not a bad thing. They're not saying that, that, that going through a lot of these things that, they're, that, that generation after generation has done, it, it's, not, it's not bad. And, and so, these, the, and again, these customs aren't, inherently wrong or anything like that, but they're things that people become very attached to. They're comfortable. They, they have some level of convenience and, and knownness. And so people just kind of keep going in that. And there's a genuine, honest, authentic attachment to how they live. That's what kind of makes them Jews. And now they're Jews that follow Jesus and they don't want to lose their history. And so we've got these rumors that are believable and reasonable and now they have to figure out how to deal with them. And specifically, it's that Paul is supposedly uh, teaching the Jews to forsake the law of Moses. Uh, the leaders tell Paul, um, 
Specifically, they say, um, you're teaching all the Jews to forsake Moses. Um, and even the word that they use there in the Greek is the word we get, um, the, the word we get apostasy. So what they're saying is that you are, what the, what the rumor is, is that you're teaching them to forsake and leave the faith of our fathers. And so that obviously is going to be an issue for a number of people. And, and specifically, what we're hearing is, is that people are saying that you're telling the Jews that they don't have to circumcise their children, which has given Israel its identity for generations upon generations, and not to uphold the customs you've lived with and identified, have identified you. And, and so... Uh, what, what, what exactly are they, what, what do you do with this kind of situation? This is not an unusual or like a one-time thing, right? Like we, I would guess probably everyone in here knows what it's like to have said something or had a conversation with someone and it comes back to you like completely messed up. Uh, that happens in almost every context in which we live, because we're humans. I mean, it happens in marriage. <laughs> it happens in business. It happens in friend groups. It happens in church. It happens everywhere. So this is not an unusual thing to happen. But what do we do when that happens? Because here's the thing. Paul actually did not... Here, here's what Paul said, and, and this is confirmed in the text. Paul did tell the Gentiles that they don't need to circumcise their children, nor do they need to follow the Jewish customs in accordance, in accordance with Jewish law. He said that, look, you don't have to become Jewish to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. You don't have to do that. You don't have to become a Jew because Jesus died for all people, whether Jew or Gentile. And, you know, later he says there's neither Greek nor Jew nor male nor female nor slave nor free, but one in Christ. And so, and so here, here he's, he, he did say that to the Gentiles. In fact, the Jerusalem council, those elders in the church in Jerusalem, they agreed with him on that because back in Acts 15, they sent a letter with Paul because this, this was kind of, an issue then about what do we require from the Gentiles to become Christians. And so, so they, they write and they send Paul with this letter and it says, and so he presents this letter to the, to the Jewish community wherever he goes. And part of it read, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you Gentiles no greater burden than these requirements. You abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well, farewell. And so that's, that's really all that they said, is follow Jesus. You don't have to do all these Jewish customs or all of these things. And so they themselves were behind that. And that's what Paul was doing. Paul did not tell the Jews to abandon their faith customs. What he did from city to city, town to town, is he did not direct them either way. What he said was, you do what your conscience led by the Holy Spirit impresses upon you to do. Circumcise your children or don't. Follow all of the ceremonial things in the Mosaic law or don't. 
But just know this, that regardless of what you do with those things, salvation and inclusion in the family of God comes through Jesus Christ alone and nothing added to it. Jesus alone. And so, and so that's what he was teaching. Paul, I, I think, spoke clearly on the things of primary importance and allowed discernment and the Holy Spirit and the community of believers and conscience and what they had of the word to de determine how they were going to live those things out. So what happened was people who had heard Paul through others, maybe secondhand, got like the game of telephone. It got messed up. Or those who were opposed to Paul, who were still as yet uncomfortable with Gentiles coming into the family of God, because that's a big thing, because the Gentiles were the enemies all my life and all of our history. And so maybe we're just struggling with that. So we're kind of opposed to Paul, so freely offering salvation to the Gentiles. So maybe those opposed to Paul, and even those who were just confused and maybe didn't quite grasp what Paul was teaching or they hadn't listened with care, a legitimate conclusion would be, well, Paul's teaching these things. And that's wrong. And, 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 so, and so what we see is, is that James and the elders at the Church of Jerusalem, I would guess, have spent a lot of time in prayer and preparing for Paul's visit because I, I would imagine they had fasted, they had prayed, and they had really worked through this before Paul got there because they are concerned about the unity of the church and they're concerned about truth and they're, they're concerned because they know that Paul's not preaching these false things. But also, this is really difficult because once things go out, it's really hard to get those things corrected, isn't it? <laughs> it is really difficult. If somebody says something about you to another friend and then that friend maybe mentions it, like it takes a long time to get that nailed down and get that fixed. And sometimes we live with the consequences of that for a long time. So this is a big deal. So I would imagine that they prepared. And so in verse 23... Maybe James or one of the elders says to Paul, says, do therefore what we tell you. And just to give you the force of this is that do therefore what we tell you uh, in the grammatical construction, that is an imperative command. They're not saying, hey, we'd like you to try this to clear things up. No, they're like, they're like, no, you will do this. <laughs> so you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to step in under our authority right now and you're going to do this. So it's not really an ask. It's more of a, nope, you're going to do this. So, so they say, for, uh, do therefore what we, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. So there's these four guys in the, in the Jerusalem church who are under this vow, probably a Nazarite vow, which has a lot to do with, it has to do with purification and it has to do with kind of setting yourself apart for God. And there's all, there's a bunch of costs and offerings associated with it. And so he says, we've got these four guys who are, who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. So don't just pay for yourself for this purification ceremony, but pay for them as well. 
so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took those four men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. So James and the elders of the church come up with a compromise. Now, sometimes when we hear compromise, we think of a bad thing. We think compromise is bad. No, some, compromise is neutral. It depends on what you're compromising about. This is kind of a, a way of figuring out how can we come together, compromise, and, and, and help people understand what's actually going on. Like, for example, a compromise that is not dangerous is that, like, when there's this taco salad that Sherry makes that I really, really, really like, except it has tomatoes in it. And so when she makes the taco salad, she compromises and puts the chopped up tomatoes in a separate little bowl that you can put them on the taco salad if you like it. That is a great compromise. It's not wrong. She hasn't like sacrificed any of her convictions. Um, and, and we get along well with that. And so that is an okay compromise. And so like James thinks of, okay, how can we come to a compromise, a place where we can communicate to these people who are misinformed how can we communicate that, that they are misinformed and help them understand that what they have heard about you is not true? So they say, here's what we want you to do. We want you to practice visibly and publicly a custom of purification for yourself that clearly tells people that you are not against and even that you participate in the customs of the Mosaic Law. Everyone's going to see you. They're going to see you doing these things that clearly tell them that you are following the Mosaic law and the customs and the culture that, they, that they've lived a part of. And, and here's the part, and I'm, I'm great with that, but here's the part that I personally have a struggle with. And, and Paul's way more spiritual than me, so he probably didn't struggle with this. But but like he brings this incredible gift to the Jerusalem church from these Gentile churches, right? They've sacrificially given because they've heard that the Jerusalem church is struggling. So they bring all of this money gift to the church in Jerusalem to do with what, however it's going to help best. And then the, the James and the elders tell Paul, I know you've been out spreading the gospel. You've been traveling. You've been in danger. You've sacrificed all this. But we not only want you to do this, we also want you to pay for yourself and these other guys, which will be costly to you. I'm kind of like, Really? That feels heavy-handed. <laughs> so like for me, I think that's a part of like, okay, I agree with you for the first part, but I'm not going to do the second part because like that just seems ridiculous. But that's what they asked Paul to do and Paul was willing to do it. Like he's willing to do, he's willing to, 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 to sacrifice himself so that other people can see Jesus more clearly. Sometimes that's a hard ask. <laughs> Sometimes that's a difficult thing to be asked when it feels like it's ridiculous. And so the question is, should Paul do this? I mean, he does do it. I actually don't believe that there's one, only one way through this. 
I think Paul could have not done this whole purification thing and not been in disobedience to God. I think he could have done this and not been in disobedience to God. Um, it's, it's interesting because um, regardless of what he does, it will inevitably, because we are human beings, it will inevitably cause someone to have questions about what he's doing and what he's saying. Because if he does this, there, there very well may be a group of Jewish Christians who say, oh, there's nothing to worry about. He's not actually doing what I thought he was doing. That's great. But then there might be a whole nother group of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who say, wait, so am I not saved because I didn't do those things? Is, is Paul, Paul, are you saying that like you have to do these things for salvation? No, I'm not saying that, but I'm going through it because it's important. So wait, I don't know where I stand with Jesus now. I, I wonder if, are you, and, and there may be people who say, now Paul is saying justification isn't through faith in Jesus alone. It's through faith in Jesus alone in the law of Moses. So I, I can see how there's, there's wide range of possibilities of the two paths before Paul. But here's what I do know. Paul is responsible to, at his very best, communicate clearly what the gospel of Jesus is. And these Jewish believers are also responsible to have open ears and hear and interpret as best they can, honestly, what Paul is saying. All of them, both groups, are responsible to clarify in humility when there is known confusion. <laughs> and, and, and I get that, like, in, in the, the first century, uh, probably for all of those Christian Jews who were confused, they probably couldn't get to Paul, but they probably could sit down and say, okay, well, I heard this about Paul. Let's talk to some people who maybe maybe know Paul better and maybe we can figure this out rather than saying, I heard this thing and I'm just gonna figure it's true. And, and so here's the thing. Uh, Paul, defender of people's freedom from the law, because you read any of his letters and he says, we are free from the law through, through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, we are no longer under the law. Paul, defender of people's freedom from the law, chose to take on himself to release his rights in order to care for and pursue those who are further from the heart of Jesus. Paul is one of those people who his, what he said and what he preached absolutely matched up with what he did. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. 
So what is he doing right here in Jerusalem? He is becoming a Jew under the law for the Jews who are under the law, even though he's not under the law, so that he can clarify and help them understand the freedom that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting because his approach requires a lot of him. (laughs) It requires him to not fall back into his convenience or his comfort. He can't just do the things he wants to do because he believes that there's a greater call and mission in his life. And here's what I think we, we take away from what Paul's, Paul's doing here. The mission of Jesus is to be presented to all people. And it's more important than anything else, and there's nothing too costly for me to give up, no comfort of mine too loved that rises above that mission. There's nothing too costly for me to give up, nothing, no comfort that I love so much that I'm not willing to, to let it go for the purpose of making Jesus known. And at the same time, that mission is to present to those people the revealed Jesus in Scripture without compromise. Who Jesus actually is. That's that's what we're responsible to do. F.F. Bruce uh, says this. He says, "A a truly free man is not in bondage to his freedom. See, Paul had freedom, but he wasn't a slave to it. Paul could live in his freedom or not live in his freedom. And we see that, the fact that he is absolutely going to Jerusalem, even though chains await him, he's willing to go because he's not a slave to his freedom. I think it's so easy for us to get so not even realize we are such a slave to our freedom that when our freedoms are threatened, we just can't function. (laughs) Jesus has set us free from all of those things and we are a slave to Christ. And that's how Paul is living out his life. So as as we kind of close this morning, here's, here's, here's what I want, here's what I think I take away. Here's some things that I learned from watching Paul interact in this passage. Number one, life with Christ is not a spectator lifestyle. We don't just, as people of Jesus, we don't just sit and kind of um, determine things that are going on out there. We are neck deep in the things that are going on. We don't sit as, as kind of like judges or 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 referees and, and that, but, but we, we step in and you see, we, you and I are, are primarily accountable for our own growth and our right beliefs according to scripture. That's the first line. Like we're responsible to, to be people of prayer and Bible study and pursuing God in those things and surrendering ourselves and following the lead of the Holy Spirit. We are accountable to live in unity, even if it means the discomfort of our customs and deeply held comforts are challenged. So even like as a Jewish believer back in the first century to say, man, the Gentiles don't have, they're not being asked to do the things that I believe are really important to set myself apart for Jesus. 
but I'm going to be okay with that because that's not what Jesus wants for them. I'm going to live my conviction under the, the power of the Holy Spirit and move forward. Second thing is this. Life with Christ is not a one-way street. We, you are called to humility and grace as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I think what that means is that we must move together. We must go to each other when there are issues and concerns and confusion. Jesus calls us to go to each other, not walk away from each other when we run into those things. We have no excuse before God to live outside of a local engaged community. There's no reason to not do that. There's not a justification for that scripturally. Third thing is this, life with Christ must be honest and accountable to the things of primary importance without compromise. Paul was not opposed to Moses. What Paul was opposed to was justification having anything to do with anything other than or in addition to Christ alone, including the Mosaic law. So if you added anything, you know what Paul would um, bristle and probably yell at you at? Is if you said, um, you can't be a Republican and a Christian. He would not accept that. He also would not accept if someone said, you can't be a Democrat and a Christian. He would have major issues with both of those statements because justification is through Christ alone, not an ideology attached to it. And that's kind of what they were doing. They were saying, hey, let's, there's this concern about adding the law to justification, to salvation through Christ alone. So we must be very clear of the things we demand and the cultural creep that moves in and takes my things and make them God's things. I have to recognize that Jesus does the work of salvation, not me or any of the things that I think are important. And finally, this life with Christ, even an obedient and faithful one, will not correct all rumors, wrong interpretations, or confusion in the hearts and minds of others. And that's just hard to accept. <laughs> Sometimes we do everything we can to help people understand our hearts and our motives and what we're saying. And still there will be people who kind of say, no, 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 that's not true. <laughs> that's just hard. But that happens to all of us, doesn't it? So here's a couple things that just the Spirit laid on my heart. And that's this. The mission of Jesus Christ, the mission of the church, our mission, the mission of the people of God, the assignment of the people of God, is to present Jesus Christ as the Savior King to all people in all places in all times. We are called to make disciples. We are called to intimacy with Jesus. And that is the highest thing that is over everything else. Now, as we carry that out, here's the deal. I have all kinds of shortcomings. And every time I preach, every time I speak from this stage, I will say, I guarantee you that I will say something that at least one person in here will say, that was weird. Or I don't know if that's true. Or I don't know if I agree with that. Or, or any kind of thing like that. And it could be that, that that one person may have interpreted what I said wrong it could be that they misheard me, or it might be that I actually was wrong. <laughs> because that's 
going to happen. It's not an excuse. That doesn't excuse anything. But there is this reality that we as people who have been bought with a price, who the Spirit indwells, we have a responsibility that no matter who we're listening to, we are called to listen to them and always be comparing them to Scripture. What God says and how the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives. And our corporate responsibility is to live in unity because Jesus is greater than all of those other things. And sometimes we have to call each other out on things that we've said or that we've done that are not Jesus. And sometimes we need to go to each other in humility and grace and say, I need some clarification. Because that happens in my marriage. If I can't communicate perfectly with my wife, who is a very smart person, then it is really likely that Deb will not understand something I say. (laughs) But that's the beauty of the family of God, is that we walk and live together pursuing Jesus. And when we let anything get in the way of the assignment and mission that we have to make Jesus known to all people, we start to drift. And so I guess, uh, again, my, my desire and commitment to you all is that uh, I always want to be humble and I want to be graceful uh, with what I say sometimes I get excited. But I recognize that there are things that I say that are right on and will probably make you upset. And there are things that I say that I could say a lot better. Sometimes I say things in my excitement that make absolutely no sense. (laughs) But that's where Jesus comes in and says, go to each other and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a communal thing. And that's where Paul is an incredible example for us to follow. So that doing this, we might win some. From darkness to light, from death to life. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you for, um, I thank you for how just ridiculously relevant your word is to our lives. Um, God, none of us, none of us are uh, strangers to, to the situation that Paul was in. Um, maybe the stakes are less for us sometimes, maybe not. But God, I, I thank you that you have given us example after example of how we walk with you in holiness, in purity. God, may we this morning even recognize that there is no cost too great, there is no comfort too loved that is not worth giving up to follow and obey you and draw others to you. So God, we thank you and we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna invite the prayer team to come forward and if you want prayer this morning, please come forward and uh, pray. Oh my goodness, thank you.
I was like, I'm getting done earlier. I, and I, I had such a great, I was so excited about communion. Um, it's not that I'm not excited about it. <laughs> um, no one interpret that as I hate communion. Okay, so, <laughs> so, 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 uh, here's the thing that I think only God can do. Only God can take a single symbol and apply it in unbelievably different ways. Because what we do when we share communion together is we remember, as Jesus said, we remember his death, his sacrifice, his willingness to die for our salvation, that the bread symbolizes his broken body, that the cup is that cup of suffering that he drank for us, for our sins. But at the same time, while this is a symbol of, of that suffering of Jesus, it is also a symbol of a table that we are invited to in Christ, and one day we will sit at that wedding table of the marriage of the Lamb, and we will also break bread and raise a cup. And at that point, it won't be a cup of suffering, but it will be a cup of celebration. On one hand, communion reminds us of the suffering servant Jesus, and on the other hand, this cup reminds us of the king who is reigning on high forever and ever. And the thing about communion is this, that the, the cross casts a long shadow. We live and walk in the shadow of the cross until we see Jesus. But don't miss in communion, there is a joy and a freedom and an anticipation of sitting at that table with Christ, sharing the bread and sharing the drink that previously reminded us of his sacrifice, but now culminates and reminds us of his reign. And so let's take the bread together. And let's take that as we remember both his sacrifice and his victory. And this cup that represents the wrath against our sin also represents the celebration of our salvation. So let's drink that together. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.